0: Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 87, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, last week we were talking about retro gaming shopping in Leeds, and uh, it's kind of like a little Ravi tour of the country, Ravi's well, Travels. Oh, I've
1: been going to all these weddings, haven't I? Have I just stack wedding as well? Probably <laughs> guy. Yeah, I was in London, and I was really shocked. There's no retro game shops in London, what? in the whole of London. And you know we had Retro Game Base on? Yeah shut down. Oh, what? Yeah, yeah. So I was looking for retro game shops. All I could find
0: was a dismal little uh, CEX in Peckham. Now, I used to live in London. I'll be honest, it was kind of before I got really back into the retro thing. But, I mean, I know we must have lots of listeners in London. There's got to be some retro shops in London. Yeah,
1: inform us if there is one, because I was just amazed. You know, it was like retro game base. I looked it up, and then I was like, oh, that, Mm. That that's fine. I can get there. And then it was like permanently closed. What well, What's going on? And I also looked for the other geek shops and they were just like Forbidden
0: Planet and a few others. <laughs> so if you're a listener in London, because we're coming down a few weeks actually for an event that we're going to be talking about in just a bit, it would be nice to, you know, spend the afternoon... Visiting a few retro shops, wouldn't it? Yeah,
1: I'm really disappointed that those guys are gone as well. You yeah. know, that seemed like a really cool little shop as well.
0: So, yeah, do let us know. Email us show at com. Are you having a weekend at home this weekend, though, Rev? Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, I am. Finally, yeah, because yeah, you're doing too much traveling, going to weigh yourself out. That's it. <laughs> Germany soon. Yeah, all coming up, isn't it? All coming up. Busy time of year, obviously, as we approach the final quarter of 2017. Oh Absolutely yeah, we've got
1: loads of shows to go to and stuff. So we're going to be bringing you exclusives from all of those.
0: Now, obviously, keep an eye on our website, theretrohour. dot com. We'll update the calendar on there as well because um, we have got Play Expo in Manchester coming up in a few weeks as well. Oh yeah, that's going to be exciting. And it feels like five minutes ago we're in Blackpool. I know it's crazy. Now, obviously, this show, every week, we go through the big retro gaming headlines. Very busy week as well, some really good stories that we need to talk about in a moment. And also, in the second half of the show, we bring you a very special guest. Now, this week, I think it's definitely one for the Commodore heads. Oh, yeah, we've got Andy Roberts, and he was writing for, you know, Commodore
1: Format and Zap, and then he kind of... Moved on to PlayStation stuff later, but now he's
0: reviving a company from the past. And also he was involved with games like Creatures 1 and Creatures 2. Oh, yeah. Have you ever played um, Mayhem in Monsterland on the Commodore 64? I've not
1: played it, but I've seen footage of it and I thought, wow, is that a C64 game? You know, it's fantastic.
0: Well, bearing in mind that was a game that achieved a 100% score in Commodore format. Perfect game. And that was kind of when, you know, Commodore Format after that, said, we can't do any more in the magazine, kind of closed down shortly yeah, after. We've reached our peak. <laughs> well, it really was, so because yeah. that was kind of like Nintendo quality. Actually, looking at some of the, the graphics on it, you know, it's not as colourful as a SNES game, but mm. in terms of quality, you know, it's pretty close. So we'll find out a bit more about that game, you know, legendary Commodore 64 title. And we did mention it in the news last week, the return of Thalamus. Yes, we'll be finding a lot more about this legendary company that are kind of making a comeback, like
1: many companies at the moment. You know, we've kind of had Team 17 are still big, System 3. Houston. There's even Cinemaware, Houston, All of these old companies are coming back, and it's really
0: good. And what's amazing is they're actually making new Commodore 64 and Spectrum games. It's crazy in 2017, who could believe it? So Andy Roberts, talking about the return of Thalamus, is going to be our special guest on the Retro Hour in around 15 minutes from now. And of course, we've got to give a massive big up to the people who allow us to keep coming in on a Tuesday evening. Yeah, having a cup of tea and a chocolate as well. <laughs> little cheeky chocolate. We always have one of those, Dan, don't we? Not if my girlfriend listens, then. The <laughs> no, right no it's fine. Apples. <laughs> yeah, I've got a wedding suit to fit into in four <laughs> <Yeah>. weeks. <laughs> but it, we couldn't do the show every week without our kind donators. And that is people who nip onto our website at some point during the week, go to retrohour.com. We have a little PayPal link on there. Now, as we say, this is not a patron, it's not a crowdfunder, it's nothing like that. It is literally a tip jar. So if you enjoy the show, obviously, you know, we're getting towards our second birthday now. If you'd like to see it continue into 2018, then all you've got to do is nip onto our website. When you get a moment, it can be like even, you know, a dollar, a euro, a pound. Yeah, or
1: well, you know, we've, we've had a couple of Bitcoin donations recently as well, which have been really nice, so thank you. Yes,
0: yeah, so we have PayPal or Bitcoin. All you've got to do is nip onto our website. You'll find all the details at theretrohour.com. And if you do make a donation, that, of course, qualifies you for your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And making the Hall of Fame this week, thank you so much to Alan Bennett, Christopher Zaremba, Laurie Turjansalo, and Greg Gorn, who've all made donations into the running of The Retro Hour podcast this week. And you can do the same to snip onto our website, theretrohour.com. And of course, there are many other ways to support this show as well. We did say last week, if you listen on iTunes, for example, or YouTube, them little thumbs up, or the five-star ratings, or even a review, they're always appreciated. Or a retweet, or a little like, and anything really. Yeah, we're all over social media, so you can get all those links on our website too. Now, should we get into this week's news stories? Oh, totally, yeah. This is a bit of a shocker. I can't believe this. All of our childhood illusions may have been broken. Oh no, what, what's happened, Dan? Someone massive in the world of retro gaming has retired. Oh God. Mario is no longer a plumber. God, what's he doing? Is he a (laughs) dustman? Down the pits? Well, this has took the retro gaming world just by shock. Made a lot of the headlines, even in the Metro. This was in the Metro the other day. Now, this is according to Mario's newly updated official Japanese language profile on Nintendo's website. And this is how it describes him. It said Mario is all-round sporty. Whether it's tennis or baseball, soccer or car racing, he does everything cool. You can tell with that belly. <laughs> <laughs> he looks a sporty type. Yeah. He? It said, as a matter of fact, he also seems to have worked as a plumber a long time ago, mm. suggesting that he's, he's not a plumber anymore. I don't know. I've never seen him fix a U bend. No, I, but <laughs> did, did he have tools in the movie? He was a plumber, wasn't he? Yeah, it was Bob Hoskins played a yeah, yeah. plumber in that in that film, definitely. And I'm sure there have been some I know I've seen the cover of like Mario Maker, I'm sure he's got like a spanner in his hand on that. Yeah, yeah. So it could not be that long ago that he retired. No, he's not a cop or anything like that. So he's... But then they're saying quite interestingly, apparently you know when he was originally called Jumpman in Donkey Kong. Yeah. He was a carpenter in that, so <laughs> okay. I think he's well qualified.
1: Mario well America. he had that big mallet, didn't he? So like, you know those wooden mallets are only used for
0: carpentry and chisels. So you know, he's obviously done a lot of qualifications in the past. He's a very busy guy. But someone actually mentioned, you know, going down wart pipes. That's kind of plumbing. I don't know. I thought there was good money in plumbing. Yeah. Doesn't need He's obviously rich enough. So yeah. enjoy your retirement, Mario. <laughs> now, Atari. was oh, obviously a company that we've been talking about a lot recently. That Atari box has been making the headlines all over. You found um, something that's not really made many of the headlines, bizarrely, on a lot of the mainstream kind of websites. But there is another Atari console that's going to be out in time for Christmas. Yeah, and this this looks really nice, actually, and it, and it's kind of affordable as
1: well, and Funstock are kind of stocking it, and it's officially made by Atari as well, and it's a little portable 2600, which is called the Atari Retro Handheld. It reminds me a bit, I mean, you know, the size of it, a bit like a Game
0: Gear kind of size, isn't it, looking at it?
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's got the, the nice wood grain effect on the side, but it's... Also, comes with 50 games as well. So, you know, it's got, like, all the sword Quest, Yar, Yars' Revenge, wow. and all of this built in. I'd, I'd love to know how it works or how it kind of, you know, if there's any lag or if there's any issues.
0: Well, you know, there is a lot of games included. Looking through the list, you got stuff like, you know, the classics on there, like Asteroid, Centipede, um, Desert Falcon. That's a good game. Golf, Haunted House, Home Run, Missile Command, Night Driver. I think definitely one of the earliest racing games. Um, Pong Video Olympics. So you're talking, you know, a lot of the classic arcade uh, Atari games, including, like you said, Sword Quest, Earth World, Fire world and Waterworld. Yeah. A lot of people learned about those games because of AVGN's video that you did. Mm. And they were the games that were made for like a contest, weren't they, in the real world where you had to track the treasure down and you got a comic book and solved it by looking at the games and like the, the, the hints that were in there. So I think historically, there's a lot of interest in those games. So it does seem like it's a bit more than just those... You know those TV boxes that you get with like the bog standard ten well, the Atari games everyone has.
1: Did you ever see Ben Heck's
0: kind of Atari portable? No, I didn't make, watch
1: it. It looks quite like that, but this one's really nicely done. Actually, it runs on like three AAA batteries. <laughs> yeah, well, so it's like, you know,
0: really old school. Well, I was going to say that because usually you'd get like a, a lithium battery that recharges in most consoles or power it via USB. The same, the only option is to power it via um, AAA batteries, which again is how we did it back in the day, isn't it? You know, playing stuff like the, the Game Gear and the Lynx, so... Yeah. It is pretty cool. And um, it's got AV
1: output as well, so you can have it on your TV. Yeah. Or, or maybe capture, capture footage of it, you know? I'd love to see
0: the looks you get playing that on the tube.
1: Oh, yeah, that would be <laughs> cool. And it's got that big wood-grain Atari on the back
0: as well. And it's I, meant, I, I might get one, actually. Was it out know? this month, is it? Uh, you could pre-order it at the moment, going to be released in november apparently so yeah there you go perfect timing to find that in your in your christmas stocking so it gets to this time of year and you start to think about what you're going to get and you know you probably send the family and like the missus your like, what do you want for christmas or your birthday no like, oh, i don't know stuff like that though the cool little stocking fillers, aren't they?
1: yeah and it's it's not very expensive either how much that, is it it's a uh, 40 quid oh wow okay yeah very reasonable
0: now speaking of things that are um it's actually a little bit more expensive but classics have been re-released have you heard about these um, re-released Street Fighter 2 cartridges that have been doing the rounds recently? No, but that sounds well cool. Well, this is Capcom. They've actually re-released Street Fighter 2 on a $100 cartridge. <laughs> what? And according to The Verge, check out this for a headline, that might set your Senez on fire. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So is this is this Capcom going back into the retro market then, uh, just to make a fast book? Or?
0: Well... It's weird because it says. They're $100 each. 100 Well, they're expensive. And they're in like this really cool kind of deep red color as well. Um, they come boxed in, you know, a classic Super Nintendo box. And these are real cartridges. These actually do work on the Super Nintendo. It's not just decorative, which is a weird part, really. And apparently, um, they're $100 each. There's only going to be 5,500 of these things made. With 1,000 of them, you'll also get a glow in the dark blanker green colour oh, as wicked. well. And the rest are kind of this, um, it's meant to be um, Ryu's headband colour, the red. Yeah, yeah. So that's what, where the colours come from. Though which one you receive is apparently random, you know, look at the
1: draw really. But it's sort of official Capcom and uh, I guess is it just the original image of the game on there then?
0: Yeah, apparently it's just Street Fighter 2 when you play it. It's not anything new. But what's bizarre is, because it's not actually the 30th anniversary of Street Fighter 2. <laughs> okay. that came out like what, 192? Yeah, yeah. This is the anniversary of the original Street Fighter. Okay, the one that came out on the yeah, Spectrum yeah, yeah. and the Commodore sixty four. No one played. Yeah, yeah, so I think it was an arcade game as well. But yeah, they're kind of clutching at straws a bit. Well, there, they, they look very double dragony,
1: don't they? In the uh, first Street Fighter, I remember yeah,
0: that completely different kind of game to the second one. And like you said, it was like pretty obscure, wasn't it, the first game? Um, but I think you know this whole setting the console thing on fire. Um, (laughs) How does it set the console on fire then? You do a special move and it just bursts into flames. If it was Mortal Kombat, fatality. (laughs) That would work, wouldn't it? But um, some people on this article here are saying, you know, how bad must the internals be that they have to issue that warning? I think what it is more the case of is you look at it two ways. If it is low quality... They probably should have just made it so it's decorative and wasn't actually a real game that works.
1: And I guess they don't know the condition of people's snazzers as well, that they're going to be running them on. They could be rammed, pack full of dust.
0: <laughs> you know. I think that's why they put the warning on there. I mean, essentially, it's just a circuit board and chips. I can't imagine it's in any danger of really setting them fire. No, no pyrotechnics inside or anything. <laughs> so I think it's really more just to cover their own... You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Cover their own bums so they don't get into trouble if anything goes wrong with such old hardware. But they don't want to. Get you know lame. this
1: coming out in November as well. It seems like another another Christmas one. You know, all all trying to get in the retro Christmas market. Although, bizarrely,
0: it does actually work out at twenty quid more expensive than the uh, SNES Mini. Yeah. <laughs> I love the comment that's on at the Verge. You scroll down to the bottom. It says, "No Nintendo seal of approval. No buy." Uh. There you go. But it is cool that, you know, companies like Capcom are kind of looking into their past and actually re-releasing games that work on the original hardware. Yeah, yeah, you really wouldn't think that would be happening these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so amazing. For the collectors, definitely worth getting your hands on. Just have, like, you know, a glow-in-the-dark one or a red cartridge. Yeah,
1: if you're, like, the ultimate Street Fighter fan, you're going to obviously want a green glowing blanker, but <sighs> the price tag seems quite hefty
0: to me. But if they're only making five and a half thousand, that's going to oh, go yeah, up in the true. future, isn't it? And yeah. You're not going to play on it anyway. I mean, who's going to put that in the cartridge? You might put it in once to see if it works in your system, but yeah. you're not going to be using it for like... Your, Set your it on fire real... once. <laughs> <That's right. it. laughs> now, before we get into this week's special guest, um, we've obviously been to... We went to an Amiga Power event, didn't we, at the Guardian, at their gaming event last year, was it? Yeah, and
1: it was really good, actually. Yeah. Like, it was a full panel of uh, all the Amiga Power guys. They had them on stage and... It was just really nice. It's quite far for us to go to London, but um,
0: well, you know what, we went it's there. Worth it. I it think really we, we was. D- we'd only been doing the podcast about a month at that stage, haven't we? It was like February last year. Yeah, and we actually met a load of listeners there that kind of blew our mind. It was the first event that we'd been to. Yeah, we ended up getting having a drink at the uh, bar and everything. Well, we're going to go again, aren't we, to uh, another Guardian Gaming event that's coming up because this one actually sounds really interesting and it's coming up in a few weeks, Thursday the twenty eighth of September at seven pm. Guardian Gaming is Mega Drive versus SNES.
1: Oh, yeah, and who was the host? Violet Berlin. What? Yes, yeah, of Bad Influence, you know, the ultimate 90s TV host. And they've also got Shahid Kamal Ahmed, who's a veteran who worked on both of them.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Kev Bayliss as well, who worked for Rare for right, nearly yeah. 20 years. And then Keza McDonald as well, who uh, was a writer and editor for Kotaku UK. Mm-hmm. And it's £15, pounds, which... Yeah, it seems a bit dear to me, but you know, you're not going to get this kind of unique setting. And I guess they might have limited numbers as well because it's not that very big.
0: Well, it's in the Guardian HQ, which is not a very big room, is it? That, you know, the whole the conference is in.
1: Yeah, in the Scott rooms or. Yeah, yeah, but so, it's it's really nice. I recommend these gaming events. If you just keep a gu- eye on them, the Guardian Live have some fantastic stuff. I never knew that we'd be going to the Guardian building and seeing something about Amiga, let yeah. alone Bad Influence. Now this
0: is so cool. Well, you might be hanging out in the bar with Violet Berlin afterwards. Oh, yeah. I, that's a dream, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to come along, we'll put a link to that in our show notes at theretroal dot com. I mean, it is the week before I get married, but you know. I'm sure Samantha will be glad of a break, you know, yeah, over at watch night. Watch Nostalgia <laughs> Nerd make a beeline for that event. It'll be on the front row. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, I think it's definitely worth coming along. And obviously, if you guys are, um, do let us know. And we'll hopefully meet up for a few drinks in the bar afterwards before. What's our train back? About 11 p.m. normally, isn't yeah, it? So yeah. hopefully we'll make it. Like we well, It finishes it. at 8.30, so we've got a while. We have. So it's definitely worth attending, like you said. I think it's going to be... They reckon this is going to be quite a lot of debate in there. I remember it got a bit vicious at school, didn't it? You know, Super Nintendo versus Mega Drive. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely on the Mega Drive side, I've got to say. Yeah, same here, but right. um, <laughs> let's see. Going to get any debate here, we? <laughs> <laughs> So if you want to come along, we'll show that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Right then, well, Thank you for checking out episode number 87 of the Retro Hour podcast. Uh, please do keep in touch with us on social media. If you're uh, on Facebook, you just search for the Retro Hour podcast or on um, Instagram and Twitter, Retro Hour UK on there. you get all those links on our website. We'll be out again next Friday available from all of your favourite podcast clients. And now, this week, it's definitely one for the Commodore 64 fans. And we're going to talk about the return of a legendary company. Thalamus is back with Andy Roberts. I'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to The Retro Hour Podcast, and it is our favourite bit of the show. Time to welcome on this week's very special guest, and this week, the man who is behind the rebirth of the legendary Thalamus. Welcome to the show, Andy Roberts. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. No problem. Now, uh, obviously, we're going to get into this uh, Thalamus comeback, which is very interesting news that we did mention on last week's show. First of all, though let's reminisce a bit. Let's go back in the day. What was your first ever computer experience and where did it all start for you?
2: Now, this is a question I've been thinking about for a few days because I know that you guys always ask this and <laughs> everything kind of blurs into one for me. I My dad was a, a, a TV engineer, so we always had technology around the house and there was always like a, a dismembered television on the kitchen table or something like that. I, I think my first kind of experience was a console experience you remember those little grandstand kind of tv pong and and you know multiple sports games tennis and stuff like that um i think he, he he brought one of those home he was fixing it and he brought it home for us to play and i think you know around about the same time my school was trying like a pilot program i must have been 10 years old something like that and once a week they would take us to the local tandy and they sat us down and we could basically sit on their TRS-80 computers for about an hour and and type in little programs and stuff like that and I also remember like when the ColecoVision came out as well my dad went to a conference in London and I tagged along with him and um, he went one way to look at all the TVs and stuff like that and I went the other way because there was a ColecoVision exhibition so and that seems to happen all around the same time so I had a lot of kind of you know, bits of exposure to computers, um, but nothing really. I didn't really get my own computer till I was about, I think, 11 or something like that. My first computer was a Commodore 16, and I desperately wanted a Commodore 64. And I think my mom had let something slip that, oh, you're going to get a Commodore for Christmas. And I
0: thought, oh, fantastic.
2: <laughs> and it was Commodore 16, which was, you know, it was great, but it wasn't a Commodore 64.
0: Well, actually, we have something in common. My first machine was the Commodore Plus 4, so...
2: Oh, fantastic. So, you're... you're, Well, the Plus 4 was even more rare than the Commodore 16.
0: (laughs) Played the same games, I think, didn't it? I remember, like, Treasure Island and Fire Ant and Icicle Works. You know, there was actually... I mean, I know it was underpowered compared to the Commodore 64, but there were a few hidden gems on the 16 and Plus 4, I think, if you knew where to look.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I remember one of my favorite games was... uh, It was a game called Exorcist, um, which was one of the the Commodore games that you could get for it. And... uh, I loved that game. I adored it. And it was written by a guy called Greg Duddle. And years later, fast forward, you know, years and years later, I was working at Sony, and somebody let slip that Greg Duddle was working upstairs in the Psygnosis office. So I sent him this email saying, are you the same Greg Duddle who wrote Exorcist? Because I thought there can't, be, there can't be that many Greg Duddles in the world. Um, and he wrote back, and he was like, oh, I'm really embarrassed. Like, you remember that game? And I was like, don't be embarrassed. That was fantastic. That was, I spent hours playing that game.
0: Yeah, for a Pac-Man clone as it kind of was, it was pretty good, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, it was fantastic, and the great music as well. It's definitely a hidden gem for sure.
0: Was that
1: kind of a Commodore vs uh, Sinclair battle at your school? You know.
2: Yes, um, and I, I only really stepped into that when I got the Commodore sixty four, and I was very aware of the Spectrum. Like friends of mine had Spectrums, and I, I seem to remember my cousin um, at one point he had a, a Spectrum, but it was like the sixteen K version. And I went around to his house one day, and uh, I think I wrote about this in uh, one of Sam Dyer's books. I went around to his house, and he said, come and have a look at this. He said, it's just like uh, the speeder bike chase from Return of the Jedi. And of course, my eyes got wide, and he sat me down, and he, he loaded up, uh, is it death, death Race or Death Chase? Um, and that was it. We Normally, we'd go out and play and have adventures and stuff like that. But we basically sat there for the entire day playing this game, just kind of, speeding through the forest and to us it was return of the jedi back then i mean nowadays you look at the graphics and they're fairly primitive but back then you know your imagination filled in all the gaps um but yeah the spectrum versus commodore thing it was it was fierce and even to this day i'll still have conversations with people and you know just kind of gently poke them in the ribs like oh you had a spectrum that must have been terrible for you and all that kind of stuff (laughs) in fact the best story was of one guy he was he was very much in the spectrum camp he was he would have defended it you know to his death and then he came around to my house one day and i showed him uridium and blew his mind straight away went home said to his mom and dad i want to sell my spectrum i want to get a commodore 64 so he did a complete 180 when he saw you know the quality of the games
1: what magazines were you kind of reading at the time then
2: i used to get a few hand me down magazines i remember there were some kind of friends of the family and They had a Commodore 64 and and they would kind of, uh, you know, give me any kind of old magazines and stuff like that to read. I mean, I was quite young when I got my Commodore 16. I didn't really have a lot of money and I didn't get a lot of pocket money and didn't have a part-time job. Um, But my real kind of formative experience was Zap 64. I I remember it was issue 17. um, So that would have been 86, I think, or 87. Um, And it's the one that had night games on the cover. And I, I I got that magazine before I even got my Commodore 64, and um, read the magazine again and again, cover to cover. And that's really what what got me interested in the magazine side of things was, you know, just the the love of words. I mean, like you know, Rignall and Pen, uh, very much kind of geniuses of their time. Just what they they did, the style, the enthusiasm, the passion, just absolutely fantastic magazine at its prime and you know instantly fell in love with it and the good thing about it was i think you could play the games sort of vicariously through them you could tell when a game wasn't a good game not just by the rating but just by the way that they talked about it you know they they genuinely felt dejected they seemed dejected when a game didn't score too well and they genuinely seemed you know just completely wowed um when there was a gold medal and stuff like that, so so definitely Zap sixty four was like the key magazine for me.
0: Well, I mean, we'll get back onto the magazine soon because I know you had obviously more to do with um, magazines as the years went on. Mm-hmm. Um, but around this time, I mean, were you a fan of um, Thalamus's games, stuff like Hunter's Moon and Delta, and those kind of games? I think I was. I was initially a bit late to the
2: party. I mean, the the first release was Sanction, and I remember. Let's just say I didn't buy the original game. Somebody gave me a copy of the game, and I remember playing that it was primarily for the music I'd heard that the sanction loading music was this fantastic new piece of music so that's really why I wanted to play sanction I mean, and it wasn't really until Delta that I really started to kind of you know appreciate that the, the quality of the games that they were producing
0: I think you made an interesting point there as well about you know that day that we we all remember as kids probably when we discovered that a tape-to-tape copier would actually work on your own Commodore
2: yeah exactly <laughs> exactly but um, I, think I, I think I very quickly got a... I think they were called backup boards, and you could plug two tape decks in at the same time, so while it was loading, you could copy on the other. And that was one of the first bits of hardware that I actually bought. So a friend would come around on a Saturday with a bunch of games that he'd got, and I had a bunch of games that I'd got, and we'd, we'd have C90 cassettes, and we'd basically just sit there the entire day just trading games, and then you'd go away during the week and kind of play those games. And I, I guess one of the things... About that era too was because you were copying the games, you didn't have instructions, and you couldn't go online and find out how to play them. So, a lot of the time we spent the week kind of playing the games and trying to figure them out, and then we'd meet up again on Saturday, and he'd say, "Oh, I figured out the controls in Whizball." Oh, I, you know, I, I, I figured out if you push the P key on this game, then it does this. So there was a whole kind of process behind copying the games of just figuring out how they worked because a lot of them back then, I, I guess, they had, you know, very intrinsic control systems and stuff like that, especially Jeff Minter games. You, you you didn't generally sit down in front of one of his games and know exactly how to play it. There was a bit of a, a learning curve involved.
1: You had to kind of reverse engineer the manual then.
2: <laughs> yeah, or you just sit there pressing every single key on the keyboard, just, just seeing if it did anything. I remember quite a few games where you just sit there pressing keys and it's, ah, oh, right, OK, that does that, and you write it down and carry on.
1: And did that kind of influence you to start getting into coding or start thinking, oh, I can create my own games?
2: You know, that really happened by accident. Um, and that kind of leads into the you know the magazine side of things. It was through Zap64 when I was contributing to that magazine. Um, I managed to get in touch with uh, the Rollins brothers, John and Steve Rollins, um, who are known as Apex Computer Productions, who did Retrograde and Creatures and Creatures 2 and Mayhem and Monsterland. And they were writing a diary for Zap64 at the time. And Robin Hogg, who was on the magazine, he was kind of my liaison point. He would mention the Rollins brothers and would talk about what they were doing. And then, you know, eventually I just ended up getting a number off Robin, called them up and said, hey, you know, if you ever need anyone to test your games or if you want to, you know, bounce around any ideas and stuff like that. So that was really my first kind of foray, foray into, you know, the world of development. Before that, I'd kind of kind of been interested but it was more about the love of the magazines you know between first discovering computers and getting into development there was a period in the middle where where all i wanted to do was just write for zap 64
0: well you actually did write some articles for them quite regularly didn't you
2: yeah i mean it started off around about 87 and I, i spent my entire summer holiday making this huge map it was like honestly it was huge it was about nine a4 sheets sellotaped together um for a game called Hero of the Golden Talisman and I sent that off, never heard anything back and then months later it just appeared in the magazine and I was just I was blown away, it's like wow this is Zap64 and they printed my thing and I couldn't believe it so that kind of fueled this spark in me to send in more kind of hints and tips and maps and stuff like that so that's what I did for a long time is just you know write tips and draw maps and stuff like that, spend hours hunched over a light table um, and send them in And, and because they were kind of you know, of a reasonable quality. They, you know, managed to get them printed and then kind of made friends with Paul Rand who worked at Zap64 for a few months and then eventually Robin Hogg to the point where Robin would sometimes call up and say, hey, can you send in a map for this? So there was a lot of stuff that was largely just contributed voluntarily. And then it came to a point, I think around about 89, I got commissioned to write an article for them. And that was a fantastic time when I actually just... Writing the article was a feat in itself because there was no internet back then. I didn't have a uh, a computer that I could do word processing on. So I had to, I remember I had to get the bus to my grandmother's house, use her typewriter to type it up um, because it had to be presented in a particular way when when it was submitted to the magazines. And then I had to um, do a photocopy and then send off the copy to Zap and all kinds of stuff. So it it was quite the process to submit an article back then. And then I remember the day that I got my check. I got my paycheck. It was £172 and 41p. And I went straight out and I bought a disk drive. And I came home with like a disk drive and it felt like i arrived in the future. Um, but it was largely the, the contributions that I've made to Zap64, all the stuff that I'd done for free. I basically built up a really good portfolio of printed stuff. And it was that portfolio that got me in with, later on with future publishing and Commodore Format.
0: Well, in 1990, you started working for Commodore Format. Tell us how you got that job then. Do you remember the interview process and how you actually got in there?
2: Oh, I remember the interview all too well. So, so basically, I think there was an advert in New Computer Express magazine. Um, and it basically, it was looking for for writers. I think it mentioned Steve Jarrett's name. And I thought, this has to be a Commodore magazine of some some kind. So I basically sent off a CV with nothing on it, essentially. And then a big, huge list of, of things that I'd had printed in ZAP64 and then about a week later, I get this phone call. And it's Steve Jarrett. I was a very shy kid. I think I was, what, 17, and I was fairly shy. I mean, you can imagine being a fan of the, you know Zap64 and all these magazines, and these, these reviewers are your idols. Mm. And then one minute, you're standing in your living room with Steve Jarrett on the other end of the phone. I think I just I managed to blurt out like two words, like, you know, he said, do you want to come down for an interview next week? It's this is the address of the office. This is the time, blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of, ah, ah, okay, and that was that. And it took a while to kind of process that. I was like, I just had a phone call from Steve Jarrett. And, you know, as the week went on, I got more and more nervous. And when I got to Bath that day, I remember it being stinking hot. And I didn't know where the office was. And it's quite a walk from the station. So by the time I got to the office, you know, I was kind of drenched in sweat. And I was just nervous and uncomfortable and, you know, real kind of fish out of water. But I was interviewed by Steve Jarrett and a guy called Steve Carey, who is one of the publishers and another guy called Greg Ingham. Greg is a very tall guy. And I remember we were crammed into this tiny, tiny office. I mean, there was barely enough room for a couple of chairs in there. And it was a very, very intimidating experience. I mean, not least the fact that I was very quiet and very shy, but, you know, you've got Greg standing there and he's, you know, well over six feet tall. Steve Carey was asking a lot of, you know, very blunt questions as is his nature. And I was just very intimidated by the whole thing. So again, I think I was probably very quiet didn't sell myself too well, so I didn't end up getting the the job, but I think it was a couple of weeks later I heard back from Steve Jarrett, and he basically said, "Look, we're going to give the job to somebody else, but you know we want to give you some freelance work he I think he appreciated what I'd done for zap sixty four and he you know he understood the the quality of my work um i would hope so yeah it was it was it was a difficult interview process but it was a good learning process, and I think years later. I went down to visit the team and I was staying at Steve Jarrett's place and we were talking about the interview process and, and he said, you know, Andy, I just think you needed to, and I said, what, you mean sell myself a bit more? And he said, no, Andy, you just needed to speak. You didn't say a word. So I must have been like a, a complete deer in the headlights, but thankfully Steve saw something in there and and offered me some freelance work. So initially I did bits and pieces for the magazine for about the first 12 months then Steve and Andy Dyer, they both left the magazine uh, pretty much overnight on cover of darkness because they were going away to a secret location to start Total Magazine. So I literally got a phone call one day saying, Steve and Andy have gone. Uh, would you like to do the entire tip section yourself? And again, one of those deer in the headlight moments. It was just, uh, okay. And literally for the next four or five years, that's what I did. Uh, it was about 13 or 14 pages of content every single month for not a lot of money by today's standards but again I was 17 years old I was in my bedroom playing games you know you'd send off your stuff you know before the deadline every every month and and that was that it was fantastic.
1: Well back then it was incredibly hard to find cheats and walkthroughs and any kind of information on games um did you end up finding some yourself or how, how did you get the cheats?
2: A combination of things really I mean I understood the technical side of it a little bit, so there was sometimes there was some hacking involved. I mean, like the action replay, that could generate some pokes on its own, but sometimes you'd have to. It was quite a process to kind of hunt through memory and find out, you know, what was what. Uh, luckily, on Commodore format, we had a couple of people. There was uh, Warren Pilkington, uh, or was, and a guy called Martin Pugh, and they used to. They were the real hackers. They were the guys who put together the the, the listings that you would type in before the program ran. So generally speaking, once a month, we'd send them a whole bunch of games and they'd just work their magic and put these listings together. Um, but in terms of, you know, pokes and, and solutions and maps and stuff like that, that was generally done by myself. So I'd literally have to sit down with a game that the editor had suggested, you know, this, this would make a good game to crack. So that would be the game that I'd have to solve. So it's quite tricky in the beginning because I'd have to solve games to order and they wouldn't necessarily be games that I wanted to solve but as time went on I had a bit more freedom to kind of suggest well why don't we do this game or why don't we why don't we do that game but um I think one of the the strangest experiences I had was like you say back then there was no way to get information on these games and I remember we had started doing a series of solutions for the dizzy games and there was nowhere to turn, of course. There's no internet. So how do I find out how to solve Dizzy? I just couldn't figure the game out. And so I seem to remember they had a, a telephone helpline that you could call up. It was like a, an 800 number or something like that where, um, you know, it was like 40p a minute or something obscene. And I thought, well, I can't call back every time I get stuck. It's going to cost a fortune. So I remember getting an old telephone and basically getting the soldering iron out and basically soldering in some wires so I could hook up the telephone to my cassette recorder and I called the helpline and recorded the dizzy solution, stayed on for about five or six minutes, recorded the dizzy solution onto a cassette and then played that back, used that to solve the game. And then from that basically rewrote the solution in my own words, basically, you know, changed a few things here and there because, you know, there were more efficient ways of finishing the game. But uh, yeah, I used that as the, as basically the crutch to kind of get through the game the first time. So So sometimes you had to use um, every resource at your disposal just to get the information.
0: Yeah, that was pretty ingenious, actually.
2: I hope Codemasters are okay with that. I hope they're okay with, with what I did.
1: Was it odd that a C64 mag kind of launched in 1990? You know, they had a Amiga format and the other magazines out there. How did they react to Commodore format?
2: I think everyone was a little bit surprised, myself included. I never really understood why that particular moment. I mean... I think, I suppose, Future were kind of, they were trying to build out their portfolio, it seemed. So, you know, they had an Amstrad magazine, they had a Spectrum magazine. So it seemed to make common sense on paper, I guess, to start a Commodore 64 magazine. But when I first heard about Commodore 4, my my initial thought was, you're going up against Zap64. So that's a, you know, that's a real kind of David and Goliath situation because Zap64 was, whether you liked it or not, it was very, very firmly established. And, you know, if you've got a loyal audience who only have like, you know, a pound or a couple of pounds a month to spend on a magazine. Um, They're going to go with what they know. So, but I didn't, I didn't really question it too much. I really took it as, you know, here's a chance to do, to do more. Here's a chance to, um, you know, do what I was doing for Zap64, but just do, do more of it. I mean, future publishing had a certain allure for me. I, I think it was, it was, on on paper it was it was a place that i really wanted to work um, and the magazines were i felt they were they were very different to newsfield magazines they, they they each had their own kind of different vibe um especially with like a and st format that was a very it seemed like a very no nonsense magazine and not as maybe frivolous as as you know the the tone in the newsfield magazines at the time so um it it did seem like an odd thing but I'm not sure what I was more focused on at the time. It was probably just you know here's a chance I can I can do more stuff and I was just I was always just looking for the next kind of creative outlet really.
0: Well, I think you know now we look back at years and like dates that machines and stuff came out, but I mean we often forget that you know the Commodore 64 and the Spectrum were still really big into the you know pretty much the mid 90s really weren't they?
2: It's crazy. Um, I mean I I know uh, a guy called Neil Grayson really well. Neil runs the the Commodore Format Archive and. We talk about it a lot. I mean, I think it was on this day in 1995 um, that the last issue of Commodore Format came out, and it's crazy to think that the Commodore 64 was still around and commercially viable mm. in 1995. I mean, the PlayStation wasn't was what maybe five six months away, um, and you've got a Commodore 64 that close to the PlayStation. It doesn't really. I mean, it didn't really register at the time. But when you look back and, and, and think about it, it's like, you know, that little machine had a, had a good run, had a really good run.
1: And there was a lot of love for it as well. I think that kept the machines going.
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think the whole 8-bit era was, was really kind of founded on love. And I must admit, um, it was a couple of years ago, um, I was uh, doing some articles for Sam Dyer's uh, Spectrum compendium. When he first asked me about it, I'd played some Spectrum games, but I wasn't really into the Spectrum as much as the Commodore 64. So uh, a lot of that writing kind of entailed going back and doing research and, and reading the old articles and, and all that kind of stuff. It's, I guess, when you're in, embroiled in that battle between Commodore and Spectrum, you don't seem to realize that all the magazines that I read and loved, all the games I, I played and loved, it's exactly the same on the Spectrum side of the fence. Like, you know, and they and they had some gems too. There were some fantastic games out for the spectrum.
0: Well, outside of the magazine, you were involved in some very well respected Commodore 64 games, Creatures and Creatures 2. Yeah. How did that involvement start then and what was that process like?
2: The Rollins brothers, they were they were writing a diary of creatures in Zap 64 magazine. They just released Retrograde. And I I was chatting to Robin Hogg and we were talking about Retrograde and I said, I said, who are these guys? Because they, they pretty much came out of nowhere. Like Retrograde was the second game that they made, but it was the first game that got released. So right out of nowhere, you've got this amazing game, like fantastic by Commodore 64 standards. I was really intrigued. It's like, who are these people? So Robin, you know, we would talk about them and Robin said, why don't I just give you the number and you can give them a call up. And, you know, I called them and offered, you know, to maybe, give them some ideas for creatures or not that they needed my ideas. Um, but you know, whether they needed any testing or feedback and stuff like that. And, uh, I think I remember in the first, even the first chat that I had with, uh, John, who was the eldest of the two brothers, he was the programmer. And he said, you know, it'd be really cool if you could come down here sometime and, you know, we could go out clubbing and stuff like that. And again, I was 17, painfully shy. And it's like, Oh, okay. Um, bit of a deer in the headlights moment, but um, yeah, I started going to visit them. They lived in Essex. I was based in, well, I was based just outside of Liverpool at the time. So it would literally be like a, you know, a, a mammoth kind of six hour train trip just to get out to Essex and hang out with them. But that's really how that relationship came about. And I would contribute various ideas to creatures. And I think I ended up doing some graphics and stuff for them for the the intro sequence for the game. And just kind of generally got into it. It was it was really their influence, like just watching Steve how Steve would create his graphics, and how you know I would literally sit with them as they were making the game. So seeing how John would code certain things, that's really what sparked my interest in in in, in kind of making games myself. So we we worked on Creatures, and of course after that came Creatures Two. Um, creatures was a bit of a nightmare experience towards the end because. I think Thalamus wanted it out just before Christmas, so we had about a week to get it done, and it was, you know, it had some bugs in it that needed to be fixed, and we needed to go down to the duplication plant to create the master tape for them to duplicate it and get it on the shelves, and I think during that last week, we basically went down to the duplicators on a Sunday evening, and we stayed there till the following Friday in the same set of clothes, um, we slept on the floor in the office. I think John barely had maybe six hours sleep in that entire week, wow. basically trying to get trying to get the game done. And it was crazy. At one point, he was a dribbling wreck. Like, he, he literally just would fall asleep at the keyboard. So in the end, we cut our losses and said, you know what, let's take our time, get it finished after Christmas. So that's why there's a bit of a discrepancy over Creatures' release date. A lot of people say it's 1990, but it wasn't. It came out in 91 because we just couldn't get it finished for Christmas. But Creatures 2 was a much more positive experience. And I spent a lot a lot more time hanging out with the guys and, you know, again, contributing ideas. And occasionally they'd send a disc through the mail and, you know, I'd test things out and give them more ideas. And after that, after Creatures, of course it was Mayhem in Monsterland. Yeah. And that was a point where we'd kind of reached a point with Creatures too, where Thalamus were going off in a different direction. So John and Steve really wanted to kind of, you know, do their own thing. It's like, you know, maybe we can publish this game on our own. We don't necessarily need a big publisher because, I mean, a a polite way of saying it would would be they didn't become millionaires from Creatures, despite the fact that it was one of the best-selling 8-bit games of its time. So, yeah, Mayhem came about, and that was, again, a real kind of just a moment of you look back and you, you think that was insane, but we just thought, yeah, there's nothing that we can't solve. There's no problem we can't fix. We can get things printed. We can get things duplicated so yeah that, that just began the process of of kind of making the game and again, I think I worked remotely from the guys for about the first half and then I moved down to Essex like during the the second half of the the development but again it was just people sitting in a bedroom making a game just just putting in the best ideas that they thought and just giving it their all so yeah it was it was very much like those kind of gold rush kind of entrepreneurial times where, You could just pretty much do what you want. There were no rules or boundaries or gaming conventions. It was just, if you had a good idea, we'd try it out. If it worked, it stayed.
0: Obviously, talking about Mayhem in Monsterland, I mean, that was a technical marvel. You know, it almost had like a a Nintendo quality to it. And I think it was the only game that ever scored 100% in Commodore format, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I would be lying if I said that there wasn't a Super Nintendo in the office and, you know, certain platform games were played. But that was the whole point. That was that was kind of like the seed of quality that kind of we we wanted to nurture was that the Commodore sixty four could do something like this if you just applied, you know, you know, the same kind of standards that Nintendo applied to their work. I mean, John and Steve they were they were perfectionists. They were fantastic at what they did, but they were also very fastidious in terms of quality. Like you, you couldn't get away with a glitch um, or anything like that. It was it was unacceptable and. In terms of Mayhem and Monsterland, I basically learned to program um, with John's help, and I said, "Well, why don't I do the intro sequence? Why don't I code the end sequence?" Um, again, not really knowing what I was doing, but certain that I could figure it out. And during that process, you know, there was a slight glitch on screen, or a flicker, or something that was just ever so slightly off. It it would always have to be worked out. It was just this this constant drive for quality, which is fantastic, and it certainly shows through. Like the the product is. It's it's very, very solid. Um, I mean, there was a lives bug. The game kind of slipped out with a bug in the, the lives counter. But that came about because we were so good at playing the game. Um, I think when you went down from 10 lives to nine lives, you actually went to zero lives. But that never happened for us when we were testing it because we became so good at the game by the end of it that we never dropped down below 10 lives but um I, I think there came a point with that game where we we, we wanted to prove you know this is what the commodore sixty four can do this this is the quality of games that you can you can achieve and we we set the bar very high and and thankfully uh, mainly due to John and Steve, thankfully we managed to kind of reach that that bar but the hundred percent rating is um still comes up to this day can be very very contentious depending on who you ask. I personally think. The 100% rating may have done the game more harm than good um, because how can you ever have a perfect game? But some people argued, well, what's the point of having 100% rating if no game can ever achieve it? Mm. So uh, there's two kind of camps, really. And it was a particularly difficult game in, in places, too. I mean, personally, for me, I would have gone 97, 98 at a push, but I think Commodore Format came at it from the angle of look, this is the last big release that the Commodore 64 is ever going to have. It's fantastic. Let's just, let's just give it 100%. Let's just go out with a bang.
1: Well, um, with the demise of kind of the 8-bit scene and, you know, Commodore format going, um, there was, as you were saying, the PlayStation fast approaching. And uh, you kind of decided to enter the 32-bit world from the 8-bit world, which uh, it must have been quite a sharp move.
2: Yeah, there was a little bit of a step in the middle. Once we finished Mayhem, there was a kind of period of, of working out what we were going to do next, and you could see commercially that everything was starting to shift a little bit away from the eight bits. I mean, the sixteen bits were really popular at the time, and uh, but they were kind of they were kind of tailing off not long after the eight bits. So we were kind of wrestled with a few things at that time. I think there was even talk once about making some games for the Philips CDI. And that would have been a terrible move. But I think in 93, was it 93 when Doom came out? And we basically saw Doom, our jaws hit the floor like everybody else in the world. And it was like, this is what we should do. We should move on to the PC. So we basically made the leap from programming assembly language on the Commodore 64 to programming assembly language on the PC, which basically involved buying a book that was about three inches thick and just reading it until the light bulb went off in your head. And we started making a game for system three. It was an arcade game called bloodlust. And it was quite a long development process. It was, you know, had a few ups and downs and it basically got to a point where I wasn't really happy working on the project anymore. So I just basically said, look guys, I'm just going to go off and, and try something else. This, I don't think this is quite for me. So, we kind of parted ways amicably. And I remember I moved back home uh, to St. Helens just outside Liverpool. And obviously I needed to find work. So um, I'd uh, look through like the computer papers every week and I saw an advert for uh, Sony Europe and they were setting up a QA department in Liverpool, um, which was about half an hour's drive away. It was kind of arrogant at the time, but I, I saw the advert and I thought, well, QA, like a tester's job. I could do that job. So I, I was really kind of cocky, but I sent him my resume and got an interview and went down and, and chatted with the guys. And the, the boss of the QA department was a guy called Tony Bourne, and he used to work at US Gold. So instantly, like he knew a lot of the people that I knew from the industry, and we got chatting and blah, blah, blah. So uh, I basically had the job in the bag, just you know purely by accident, but I had the job in the bag before I'd even left uh, the building that day. But that was a fantastic moment in terms of um you talk about that that leap you know from 8 bits i walked into a room and it was a huge open plan office and it was just lined with playstations um kind of wall to wall and up until that point the playstation had been kind of like a myth or a rumor or a legend i mean you you read about this thing called the psx when it was first announced and then a friend of mine read somewhere that it was going to be called the PlayStation X, which was a a name that I thought was ludicrous. It was like, this is like play school. PlayStation, nobody's ever going to buy this. Um, But when I walked into that office, and you see it was just these hundreds and hundreds of PlayStations, um, and they were playing uh, Ridge Racer and a a game called Jumping Flash, I remember. Mm. And they sat me down in front of one and said, um, just write a page, like 500 words about this game. And, of course, I had my you know, magazine background to fall back on. So I thought, well, this will be easy. But I was just blown away because, you know, you go from working on the Commodore 64 to sitting down in front of basically an arcade machine. And it was just, I was speechless. I was just, I think I spent more time just staring at the graphics and staring at the game, thinking like, wow, this is the future. And it was just tucked away in some tiny little office in Wavertree and it's like, you wanted to kind of tell the world like, yeah, the PlayStation exists, it's here and it's amazing. So that was, uh, that was quite the leap, but I stayed with Sony for about a year. Um, and that was an amazing time because that was before and through and post launch for the PlayStation in Europe. And just to meet some of the people involved and you know, some of those early games that came out, um, it was a really, really fantastic time. I mean, nobody really knew what they were doing Um, we had no real test guidelines that were all kind of made up as we went along. And it was a fantastic time though, in terms of some of the people that you'd meet would be really exceptional gamers and stuff like that. And it got to a point where again, the creative urge crept in. And I said to my boss, you've got some really great testers here, some really great games players, and they have a lot of really good ideas. Why don't we set up maybe a beta department where companies can submit their games early we can test them at beta stage and give them feedback on the actual game instead of just giving them a list of bugs at the end of the game and you know which no developer wants to get you know we can actually give them feedback and 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 suggestions and whatnot. So we set up a kind of unofficial beta department and the first game that kind of landed on my desk was Crash Bandicoot. And again, this game came out of nowhere. Nobody knew that it was happening um, because it had been developed by Sony America. And instantly there was a crowd around the machine. And again, I'm just playing the game, just staring at the graphics, thinking, "How did they do this?" Because it it wiped the floor with with every other game that we'd we'd seen. And so eventually, I ended up writing a huge, like thirty something page report full of ideas and feedback and stuff like that. Um, ended up getting my name in the end credits, and that that kind of bled into kind of other projects, like the first Formula One game that came out for the PlayStation that was developed by. Bizarre Creations, who were just around the corner, so we would um, literally leave work um, at Sony and then go over to Bizarre Creations and hang out in their office for a few hours, um, just you know, raiding the snack cupboard and you know, giving them feedback and stuff like that. So we got to see you know the birth of Bizarre Creations going from like a two or three man company up to the massive studio that it eventually became. So, so yeah, it's one of it was one of those really kind of strange twists of fate just from adding. Uh, answering a, a simple ad.
0: I think, you know, people often forget just what a revolution the PlayStation was. I mean, we talk to people, as kind of two systems they always mention, like when they first saw the Amiga and first saw the PlayStation, those were like the two massive defining changes.
2: Absolutely. I would agree with that because I remember being a, a Commodore 64 owner, I saw a, it was like a, I think a wild copper demo on a friend's Amiga. I, st- I still have my diary from that time. And I went home, ran home from my friend's house and I wrote in my diary. It's like, I have to get one of these. And I was only at the time, I think it was getting like a pound a week pocket money. So it would have taken several years to save up. <laughs> You'd still be long.
0: saving now, I think.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think it would have just paid for it by now. But, uh, but yeah, I, I would agree with that. The Amiga blew me away. It's like, I, I have to have one of these. And then I saw the PlayStation. It was just, it was, it was just one of those things. It was like, wow, this is really going to take the world by storm. And, I think it it did. Like, I think one of the things that the PlayStation isn't really credited for, it changed the culture of games as well. I think it made games a bit more socially acceptable, because it, now it would sit under your TV and it wouldn't be something to be embarrassed about. Like, oh, you know, he's in his room playing computer games. It it became more of a central thing. It became more of a social thing. I think people who didn't necessarily understand what computers and computer games were, they began to understand what the PlayStation was. Um, and I think I think the PlayStation and the Saturn should definitely take a, a big chunk of credit for that, for, for really kind of defining that, you know, how video games fit into our culture. And I remember there was a, Future Publishing had a magazine called Future Gamer, which um, was like the first online magazine that they did. They would also email a copy to you if you only had email. And I remember writing an article for that in terms of, uh, I think it was called The Word on the Street, because The Word with Terry Christian was really big at the time. So... You know, the, the the kids who'd grown up um, playing computer games were now moving on to the PlayStation. They were watching The Word. You'd come, come home from the pub on a Friday night. You'd watch The Word. You'd play some PlayStation games. So, so the whole kind of cultural landscape around video gaming really changed at that point, too. Well,
0: there was one game, you know, kind of bringing the Amiga and the PlayStation together that you worked on later on. Um, with System 3, you um, worked on Putty Squad on the PlayStation 2. What kind yes. of the challenges of bringing that game to the, the PS2, being that it was originally a 16-bit game? And yeah, highly so anticipated. About,
2: um, I'd basically uh, been working with System 3. In fact, I got to work with a guy called John Twiddy, who wrote The Last Ninja Games on the 64, and we'd been working on a, an Xbox version of Last Ninja called Last Ninja The Return. And I think around about that time, System 3 had just launched their the Play It label, which was kind of like a budget label, um, and one of the games that they wanted to do was uh, Putty Squad, and they also wanted to do a version of International Karate, but basically give them a little nudge into the next generation. So IK was destined to be uh, like a 3D game, kind of like a virtual fighter almost. And uh, Putty Squad would still be a 2D platformer at heart, but with a few kind of little 3D embellishments here and there. It's very tricky, actually, that in those days to sell a 2D game. Um, I seem to recall, for a long time, Sony would veto anything that was 2D um, because it didn't showcase the 3D kind of hardware. It didn't really showcase what the machine could do. So a lot of 2D stuff was was very quickly vetoed in the beginning. But, um, but yeah, I mean, for one reason or another, um, neither Putty Squad nor IK actually came out. But they were a very interesting experience um, trying to make that transition onto PlayStation development. I mean, they were both destined for the PS2, which, again, was a quantum leap up from the PS1 and a whole different way of putting games together. But, yeah, it would have been interesting to to see uh, what the critical reaction would have been uh, to those games, because there was kind of like a there was a gold rush time with the PlayStation when, you know, the platinum range started coming out and the price really fell and there was this this bit of a rush for budget companies to sign up games and and get brand new games made but it very very quickly it, it basically ended as quickly as it it had began so you had a lot of kind of you know very kind of ropey budget games for sale in Tesco and places like that so so it just it basically you know started to crumble apart
1: why do you think companies like system free or you know Hoosun are kind of coming back and revisiting their old ips
2: it's a good question. Um, I, I, mainly because people have asked me as well, like these thalamus games, thirty years old. Why are you bringing it back? Isn't it hasn't it had its time? But it's difficult to know. Say, for instance, why you know System Three would bring back, say, The Last Ninja or something like that. I know they've they've done some high def remakes recently. Of they did Putty Squad, I think, for consoles, and they also they're just about to bring out, I think, Constructor HD. I think in some cases these games are timeless. Um, I think some games you could actually just, you know, give them a, a HD kind of makeover and, you know, they'd be absolutely fine. They'd stand the, the test of time. Um, others don't um, weather the the storm too much, you know, some some games really kind of show their age. Um, it's, I mean, I can't really speak for System 3. I know with, with Thalamus that um, it was around about, I don't know, three or four years ago, um, I was, I think I was made redundant. So I had a lot of time to kind of, you know, sit and think, and I kept coming back to the 64. I kept coming back to those games. And I just thought, well, maybe I can do some, you know, pet projects with my free time or or something like that. And that's where the idea of the remasters came along because a lot of these computers never went away. A lot of the hardcore fans never really went away. They may have pushed the machines aside a little, but there's still that thirst for games. There's still that kind of, it's still nice to kind of you know load up a game it's that time machine that kind of takes you back to your youth and i I think that's a good thing the remasters really came about because discs and tapes are getting very old and i went through my collection recently i was putting some stuff on ebay and i was testing some of the cassettes and some of them weren't wearing too well and i just thought maybe this is the time to kind of you know put some of this stuff on cartridge so that it can still be played because you know there are new versions of the commodore 64 coming out new motherboards and hardware and stuff like that so i don't think the machines are going anywhere so that was kind of you know so, you know something behind the the remasters you know just the fact that the magnetic media was dying but the other thing for me is just thalamus is very much a creative key to my past and i love the games and you know, I still want to play the games on an actual machine. I just don't want to wait half an hour for it to load in. Um, But I noticed that when um, Thalamus was announced and the the Kickstarter campaign was announced, there were so many people on social media who were like, what? Thalamus? Wow. And it, you know, it was just a blast from the past for them. So it's it's not just the people who, you know, never went away. There's also people who... Did leave the Commodore 64 scene, went away, got married, had kids, had a life, and then all of a sudden this blast from the past comes back. I mean, for me personally, it's it's mainly fueled by nostalgia because nostalgia is great, to be honest. I mean, it's you know the, there's nothing like loading loading up an old favorite, you know, the feelings that it gives you and the fun that it gives you. I mean, I'm a next generation gamer too, you know, like PS3 and PS4 and Xbox and all that kind of stuff, but. A lot of 8-bit stuff still holds its own, still has a place.
0: Well, let's talk about the rebirth of Thalamus then. What is your plan for it then and what's coming up?
2: The original plan was really to... I had this crazy idea. It was almost like Ocean's Eleven. But to put together this dream team, you know, as more and more kind of old heroes and programmers and artists started to appear on social media, it's like, well, maybe they have some spare time. Maybe this artist can do some graphics. Maybe this this coder can help out. We can put together some some new games because um, around about three or four years ago, there seemed to be this this steady kind of climb in interest again in, in terms of new games and stuff like that. Um, and there are a lot of companies like RGCD and Cytronic and whatnot still releasing games for the 64. So it started off as this kind of like pipe dream of like, yeah, maybe we can get this person involved. and And everyone was kind of very amenable to the idea, but everyone has busy lives. Everyone's grown up now and, you know, has those responsibilities and whatnot. So as enthusiastic as everybody was trying to assemble a game um, was a little bit trickier. Um, So that's where the the idea for the remasters came up. It's like, well, you know, if, if we're going to make some new stuff, why don't we do some, you know, lay the, you know, pave the way, do some groundwork and and remaster the original games. And then the new games, they can be designed specifically for cartridge and they could follow on directly uh, from the original games. So it was really just to kind of like rebrand and re-release almost like a director's cut or a, or like, like a remastered DVD, just to give them a spruce up, a polish up, um, take advantage of modern technology, put them on cartridge, you know, give them a save facility so that, you know, you didn't have to rewind to the start of side B every time you died and stuff like that. And then once the remasters are done, then we've got the infrastructure in place, the knowledge in place and the team in place, hopefully, um, to start building some original products. Um, So there are ideas beyond the remastered games. I think there's about maybe 10 Thalamus games that ultimately I'd like to to kind of remaster and re-release and give them little tweaks and stuff like that. Um, But then there are some, you know, bigger ideas on the horizon.
0: I think it's cool that you're doing it for the Commodore 64 as well. I mean, you're even doing Creatures 3.
2: Yes, um, Again, as I say, Neil Grayson, who works for the Commodore Format Archive, we were chatting about the remasters and he he basically said, you know, the same thing. He said, Well, what's next? And I said, Well, we'll be doing some sequels. And he said, Well, what? Precisely? Like he's Neil's a, a journalist and he, you know, is always keen to to see an opportunity. And he said, You know, creatures three, is that gonna happen? And he kind of coaxed it out of me. And it's like, Well, well, yeah, okay. Um, I mean it's there's a lot writing on it. I mean, obviously we need the uh involvement of the original creative team as well who again have busy lives and whatnot um and i'd I'd really want to have them involved and do it with their complete blessing but but yeah i mean it's literally once the remasters are out of the way um creatures 3 is is something that i'd want to see uh and something that you know people have waited a long time for a lot of fans uh want to see the the characters come back again um and there's also you know other titles for example armor light 2 has been you know, touted about the the internet forums for a long time, and that's um, you know Dan Phillips and Robin Levy who worked on the original one. It's something that I've talked with those guys quite a bit about. Um, so yeah, there's there's a, a a lot of projects that we want to do for the Commodore sixty four, a lot of uh, SQL projects. Um, we also want to do projects for the Spectrum next. Um, I backed the the next campaign and. Um, I know Henrique, Enrique, I think it is who who ran the Spectrum next campaign. I was you know back and forth with him about the thalamus spectrum games that are out there, and um we're going to be getting a development kit fairly soon, so um there's a whole raft of titles, like you know the thalamus titles now we're in a position where we can do a spectrum version we can do a spectrum next version um we can actually all those conversions that never made it to the specy, which some of them were started, some of them which just existed in screenshot form. Um, but now's the chance to kind of bring those to the Speccy and the Speccy Next. And ultimately, you know, we want to publish on a variety of formats, not just Spectrum Next, not just Commodore 64. You know, there's a lot of kind of retro-style remakes, like games that look like they've, they're have they made for the NES or the, the Super Nintendo, um, but they're coming out on the PC. You know, games like Shovel Knight, yeah. things like that. Um, and that's ultimately what I would aspire to is, is publishing retro style games, but not just for retro systems for, you know, consoles and stuff like that. I mean, my day job is effectively still making video games and making uh, mobile games. So, you know, I know the process involved in, in getting a game out on the Commodore 64. I know the process involved in publishing for Xbox and publishing on Steam. So to me, it's like, you know, I have the opportunity to kind of, you know, rush home every night and, and do other side projects too. So I guess I'm still kind of like an antsy creative kid at heart.
0: I think it's great just to give as many people as possible a chance to play the games. And I do quite like the idea that, you know, maybe some people will read The Creatures 3 is coming out in like a magazine and then dust off their Commodore 64 out the attic and get it set up again after like 30 years. Hopefully,
2: hopefully. I mean, it, it never goes away. I mean, I, like I say, I have a, a Commodore 64 set up here and I was putting a bunch of stuff on eBay recently, so I was, I was playing through a whole bunch of games, and the quality, you know, it's a bit of a roller coaster, but it always manages, you know, the the, the games that you loved and um, the games that you played to death. It, you know, it really kind of, that nostalgia, you can't really, you can't describe it and you can't really um, bottle it, but, you you know, you just have to go back and play the games. But but yeah, I, I, that's that's the idea, is, is, you know, that someone will see it and think, you know, I think I've still got that Commodore 64 in my attic. I think my mum's still got my Commodore 64 and I like to dig it out, but now it's easier, they can just pop in a cartridge, you know, flick on the power and that's it, they can play the game straight away.
0: Well, Andy, it's been wonderful talking to you and getting all your memories and, uh, you know, it's just amazing that Thalamus are back for the 21st century. Um, When's the Kickstarter going to be launching? So it's coming up on
2: September 29th, Friday, September 29th. Um, Not precisely sure about the launch time, but it's probably going to be, um, probably stupidly early probably about 7am uh, kind of UK time
0: Amazing and if people want to keep up to date with that where can they find it?
2: Um, we have a Facebook page so facebook.com slash thalamus Digital we're also on Twitter which is at thalamus Digital um, or you can go to uh, uk. the new website to be online fairly soon
0: Fantastic we'll put all of those in our show notes this week as well so it's been amazing reminiscing with you Andy really enjoyed it Thanks guys really appreciate it